Tonight, uh, this is the true God and eternal life. The final verses of John, 1 John, I should say, chapter 5. Would you stand one more time? Let's read it together. Just uh, beginning in verse 19 through 21. And it reads the following. We know, 1 John 5, 19, that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, verse 20, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Amen. You may be seated, Father, as we have moved through First John. It's been a wonderful study, and we close on some very powerful verses. Give us ears to hear what you would say to your people. Encourage us with your word. Build us up. Uh, exhort us, Lord. Help us to see things maybe that we haven't seen before. And ultimately, Lord, help us to respond to it in a way that would please you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. This is the true God and eternal life. We are looking at 1 John 5. Pick it up in verse 19. It says, we know, and I love that John continues to give us that little phrase. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We know that we are of God. Now, you might ask, well, how do we know that we are of God? There's been some unnerving verses in 1 John. Look at verse 13. You might want to draw a line if you write in your Bible from 13 down to 19, because the, one of the purpose uh, verses in 1 John is verse 13 of chapter 5. These things I have written to you, so I wrote the letter, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Go down to 19 now. Connect it. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, we know that we are of God. What does that mean? How do we know that we're of God? Because we have believed in the name of his only begotten son. This is what God has asked us to do. He has asked us to trust in the one whom he has sent. Have you done that? Have you trusted in the one and only son of God? God the son, second person of the Holy Trinity. We'll talk about his deity in a moment. And that's the question. And, and if so, then we know our, we, are, uh, we are of God. By contrast, this is something else we know. The whole world, the word whole there is halos in Greek, H-O-L-O-S. And it sounds just like we would expect it. It means the whole, all, or the entire or complete world lies in the power of the evil one. If you have a NIV, it says it's under the control of the evil one. Uh, in reading a commentary, F.F. Bruce says the world lies in the grip of the evil one. Now, you might step back from that and think, really? I mean, the whole world and whole does mean whole or the entire world lies in his grip. In verse 18, we had some encouraging words to all of us as believers that we know that no one who is born of God, look at 18, sins or continues in sin, but he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him, only as God would permit, but God has a hedge about his people. The evil one cannot touch him or does not touch him, hands off. 
And then, but the whole world, by contrast to the believer, lies in his very grasp or in his very grip. What does it mean when we say the whole world? Because we live in the world, but we're not in his grasp. So who is this? Where the, the word for world there is cosmos. It is K-O-S-M-O-S in English, or it could even start with a C. It's where we get the study of cosmology, and we look at the universe and how that points to God. But in this sense, cosmos speaks of an ordered arrangement, a structure, and here it speaks of the world's system. So the whole of the world's system is in the grip of the evil one. What does that mean? That means the way it's being directed, the way it's walking out, the drummer that it marches to is ultimately the values of the evil one. Now, Jesus said of him that he was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44, and he does not abide in the truth. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. In the fall chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, when he comes into the garden in the form of the serpent, he questions God's word. And he says to Eve, did God really say? And then he says to her, Genesis 3, 4, you will not surely die. But God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes will be open and you will become as God's. Knowing good and evil. Get this. This is what the devil did from the very beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. He told our parents they wouldn't die. God said, if you eat, you're going to die. He said, no, you won't. So not only did he question God's word, he contradicted God's word. And then he said, you'll become a god if you partake of the forbidden fruit, which was a lie. And the moment that they ate of it, they died spiritually. So he's a liar. He's a murderer. He's the father of lies. And the whole of the world's system, now I'm not talking about the physical globe that we live on, but the system of the world, its beliefs, its values, etc., lies in his grip or in his grasp. If you step back for a moment and you wonder, how is it that the system of the world, you can think of laws, you can think of morality, you can think of a lot of different categories. How is it that it's moving in the direction that it is and so quickly? Well, because it is being led by a liar who is anti-God in the ultimate sense and anti-God's values. He is against God and he is against the values or morals of God. So should it surprise us that we see what we see, where people now call good evil, and they call evil good, in fulfillment of Isaiah, I think it's chapter 45. The whole world is in his grasp. By contrast, we are in the grip of Christ. He holds us in his very capable hands, amen? And we are safe and secure in his hands, So think of it this way, God's got us in his hands, and we can think of Jesus' nail-pierced hands, and he holds us, and we are in the sun, but the world is in the grasp of another. And they don't necessarily know it, not all of them, but they are following the system of the world. You you could interview people on the street, no one's going to say, yeah, I follow Satan. There's going to be a few people who might say that. 
But it's the system. It's a satanic system. Why? Because it's anti-God and anti-God's ways. And so this is what's happening in the world. Now, we know that we are of God. We are safe. We are hidden in the sun. We are in Christ. But the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one. What would the ways of the world be that we might uh, take a look at? Well, just flip back a few pages to 1 John 2 and look at verse 15. This is, once again, the world as we would define the cosmos. It says, do not agape the cosmos, 2.15, 1 John. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's in the world? All that is in the world includes the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 2.16, and the boastful pride of life. This is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world system is the source of those three things in verse 16. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives or abides forever. The world and its ruler is passing away. Now, from the beginning, in the garden scene, the usurper came into the garden. And he tried to speak, and he spoke lies to our first parents. He usurped God, and they fell. But that usurper is going to be dealt with. Now, he was already dealt the death blow at the cross. Jesus made a, a spectacle of principalities and powers triumphing over them by the cross. Satan's head will soon be crushed. And in fact, it says that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to slay the Antichrist with simply the brightness of his coming and the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. So, at some point, Satan will be put aside. He will end up in the lake of fire. And we won't have to deal with him anymore. But right now, he is pushing the train. Right now, he is leading the system away from God, an anti-God system. Uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We get a little bit more about this dilemma or what's been happening to mankind. Ephesians chapter 2. Remember in Ephesus, they had, um, and many believe that uh, John is writing to the people in Ephesus, they had the, the goddess Artemis, Diana, and the little uh, shrines that they made to her, and there was idol worship all over the place, idol worship in Athens, idol worship in Ephesus, it was everywhere. And Paul writes these words. He says, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to what? The course of this world. Now, there's a good picture of the course or the pattern of the cosmos. The course of this world. You walked, you lived that way. According to the prince of the power of the air, most scholars say that's Satan, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived or walked in the lust of our flesh. Now, that's one of the things we saw in 1 John 2, 16, the lust of the flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. That's the bad news. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. Amen? And then a lot of good stuff that follows that. But for our purposes tonight, do you see the contrast? When we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we are following the course of this world. And these two are very opposite one another. There's a course for the Christian to walk according to God's, uh, and I've been talking to you about worldview, to have a, a view of the world that considers God and his lordship, to have his ways be uppermost in your mind. And then there's another way to live where you are, you want nothing to do with that. And there's not a lot of wiggle room in between, amen? Uh, You know, you have the ways of the world and you have the ways of the kingdom. And so Jesus had a lot to say about the world, but just in rapid fire, he said, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, driving unbelief and sin. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling blocks come. Jesus said these words, John 12, 46 through 48, I've come as a light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, Jesus entered into this world system to save it. And the way that he pulls us out of it is through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, and his current ministry to us as believers. But he comes to save, and when he saves a life, he pulls us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And what happens is you get saved, you're born again by grace, and now he begins to change your value system, amen? So now you have a new Lord and you have a new direction. And that's what happens to every Christian. Jesus said in John 14, 29, now I've told you, John 14, 29, before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. He said in John 15, 18, the world hates you. Uh, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And then he says of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8 through 11, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you no longer behold me concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged John 16 8 through 11 this passing world order and its ruler are on their way out that is what you can know they are to be superseded quoting from one commentator, by the eternal order of its rightful ruler. The subjects of the latter will abide forever. The usurper will be crushed, brought to an end, and destroyed at the day of the Lord or the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. So his reign of terror will end, thankfully, gratefully. This is why we look for the blessed hope. Back to 1 John, if you turn there with me. We look for the blessed hope, the the coming of our great God and Savior. We look for the the glory that's going to be on display on that day. But here's what we know right now. We are of God. We're in his hands. But the whole world is in the grasp of the evil one. I hope that helps you understand a little bit of 
the dynamics and the battle going on, verse 20, 1 John. And we know, there's another we know, that the Son of God has come. Now that's his first coming and has given us understanding in order that we may, might know him who is true and we are in him who is true. A little further about being in his hand. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Now, this is one of the stronger deity passages in the New Testament that you're going to find about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is unmistakable that the language is pointing towards the fact that Jesus is God. I remember, uh, you know, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and I, I knew something about the Trinity and I knew about Jesus dying on the cross. But when I began to hear Christian pastors teach, and I would hear them say Jesus is God, I would become confused. I knew that Jesus was God's son, but I didn't quite understand how Jesus could be God's son and be God at the same time. How does that work? Well, a passage I will just commend to you is Colossians 1.15, if you're taking notes. And essentially, that passage teaches that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. That is, God is spirit. And so when Jesus was incarnated, when Jesus became a human, the invisible God, the fact that God is spirit, became visible, amen, in the person of Jesus Christ. I always want to say this with reverence, but it helps people remember. He is God in a bod, okay? And, Lord, they laughed. I, I just said it so they could remember. <laughs> Colossians 2.9 says, In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. So you write down Colossians 1.15. It says that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. You write down Colossians 2, 9, that says the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. Jesus is God. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So the Father was manifesting himself through the Christ, and of course the Holy Spirit as well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Jesus spoke, he spoke what the Father would speak. When Jesus healed, he healed as the Father would heal. He always did those things that please the Father. Whenever you see Jesus doing something compassionate, whenever you see him calling out hypocrisy, whenever you see him speaking a word like no man ever spoke, the Father is speaking through him because they are united. They are one. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Now, I know this is no light teaching. I know it is a little tough on the brain to try to understand the triune nature of God and then how to understand that Jesus is God in human form, but that's who he is. And he did not ever, this is very important to understand, divest himself of deity. God can never stop being God, but he took on the additional nature of humanity. Let me say that one more time. Jesus never divested himself of deity. 
He took on the additional nature of humanity. So he, God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is the truth that Jesus Christ, when you saw Jesus, you were seeing the Father, at least in human form. Did he veil the deity in humanity? Did he walk around? Did he get tired and hungry? Did he die on the cross? Yes. He experienced all of that because he was also 100% human. Now we come to the heart of why John wrote against the Gnostic heretics, because they denied Jesus's humanity. They didn't think that he could walk around and, and actually leave footprints, etc. We've been over all of that. But the bottom line is that Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And we know, 20, that the Son of God has come. We have the record. We know he appeared. On the, he has dated the calendar of the world. And he has come and given us understanding. He's come and given us understanding into what? Into who God is. He said to Pilate, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Amen? And then Pilate said, what is truth? Right? Because Pilate was confused. He lived under this idea that there were many gods and goddesses and there was those weird Roman Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses and they fought all the time and you had to appease them and there were omens and there were weird things like that. But the bottom line is that Jesus has come to give us understanding. If you want to know who God is, look and study, look at and study the life of Jesus. Amen? Because he said, if you've seen me, you've Seeing the Father. Amen? So he's given us understanding into what? Into the heart of God. Into how one gets saved. Into whether or not there's life after death. Whether or not there's a heaven. What God's values are in his kingdom. What he expects of you. What your life purpose is. Why you're here. Why do you exist? Where are you going? How can you know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's come to give us understanding. Isn't that nice? Isn't that beautiful? That God didn't just wind up the clock of the world and say, good luck, humans. No, God, listen, God entered into our pain. When I talk to people who are skeptical of the God of the Bible, that's one thing that I say about Jesus. Jesus entered into our pain bore our transgressions on the cross, amen? Bore our burdens. That's the love of God. That's how you can understand who God is. What does he want from you? He wants you to believe. He wants you to follow. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to know there is a heaven. There is a resurrection. There is a hope. And that hope will not be taken away. You have to place your trust in him. We know we know. He's given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, end of verse 20, this is the true God and eternal life. 
Notice how many times true is mentioned just in this short little section. In him who is true, we are in him who is true. This is the true God and eternal life. And whenever you see this kind of emphasis, you know that the implication is when Jesus is called the true God, it implies that there, are su- there is such a thing as false gods. And that's when you, when you we're going to study the first commandment on Sunday. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. The God of the Bible is not acknowledging other deities at his level. Because he'll go on to say, don't make an idol. And what the God of the Bible is simply saying is this. There are false gods aplenty, and they're all over the place. They they were in droves in the ancient world that Paul went and preached. When he went to Athens, he walked down an agora. It would be like going to the mall and seeing 3,000 different altars to different gods and goddesses. That's what Paul encountered. And it says that Paul was annoyed when he saw the city full of idols, literally drowning under the idols. This is how the world has been. And today, it might not be a statue, although there are people who have statues of different gods and goddesses still in their homes and businesses today. But it takes on a different, uh, maybe, look in the Western world. But in this book, think with me, the warning against idolatry is a false notion of who God is. It's a false gospel. That's an idol. Because if you redefine the biblical Christ, then you have a God that can't save you because now you've denied the gospel. Amen? And so this is what's being said here. And so just quoting something very helpful from F.F. Bruce, he says, John, in closing, takes up the theme of his opening paragraph where he assured his readers that the fellowship which he shared with them was fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. As in the prologue to the letter, Jesus Christ is described as the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. So he, here he is characterized as the true God and eternal life. So fully is the Father expressed in his Son that what is predicated of the former can be predicated or proclaimed of the latter. What God was, the Word was, John 1.1. 1, 1. Our Lord is rightly acclaimed as the true God of true God. As C.K. Barrett says, in commenting on the first verse of John's gospel, the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. To put it the way Warren Wiersbe puts it, Jesus is the real thing. He is the true light, John 1, 9. The true bread, John 6, 32. The true vine, John 15, 1. And he is the truth, John 14, 6. He is the true God. Any other substitute will be a counterfeit. Any notion of spirituality without him, any notion of salvation without him is a lie. He is the true God. And once that statement is made, then it calls upon the world to make a decision, doesn't it? If Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, he's made a very exclusive claim. Now, you, people could argue, well, just because you make the claim doesn't make it true. True enough. But he did make the claim. 
So enough with, well, Jesus was just a good moral teacher, a really good guy. Uh, you know, one of many way showers to show us the way. Uh-uh. He said he's the only way to God. Now, you have to wrestle with that statement, right? Did he back up the statement? Well, he said, destroy my body, and in three days I will raise it up again. And he rose in the very history in which we are embedded, brethren. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the stamp the approval of the Father, the amen to the statement in John 14, 6, that he is the truth. And so now we have a decision to make. And seeing it from the positive side, God has made a way for us. He came down to give us understanding, and then he blazed the trail himself. He made the way himself. He showed us who God was, and then he made the way possible for us to be right with the Father. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so the danger that the original recipients of the letter were running into is that they were being told, no, Jesus really isn't the God-man. No, he didn't leave footprints. No, the, the Christ spirit came on him on his baptism and left him before the crucifixion. And the answer to all of that is no, 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 no. You see, all of that is idolatry. All of that is false. Now, there's only one true God. How do we know that Jesus is God? Uh, he made these incredible claims. How do we know? What, what do we understand from Scripture? Now, in rapid fire, I've asked the guys in the back to put verses up on the screen. And I'm going to show you just, I'm going to read these quickly. You can write down maybe the Scripture addresses. Are we ready? Deuteronomy 4. Hopefully we got it. And we're going to run through these verses. 435 says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. Read it with me. There is no other besides him. Skip down to verse 39, Deuteronomy 4. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth. There is no other. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, the famous Hebrew prayer, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord... The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. All right? 2 Samuel 7.22. For this reason, thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee. There is no God besides thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Psalm 86, verse 10. For thou art great and doest wondrous deeds. Is it up on the screen? Thou alone, read it with me, thou alone art God. All right, if you're interested, you can turn to Isaiah because here's where we're going to land for uh, the next several scriptures or just keep looking up at the screen. This is Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was... No God formed, and there will be none after me. Skip down to verse 12. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my, my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. By the way, that's said of Jesus in Revelation 1. And there is no God besides me. And who is like me? 44.7. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare to, to them the things that are coming, the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Now, we're going to go on just for emphasis. And I want you to see a very important text. Because John 1, 1 through 3, and Colossians 1, 15 through 17, say that all things were made by Jesus. They were made for him and by him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Amen? John 1, 1 through 3, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. You also look at Hebrews 1, through whom he made the world. So look at this. Thus says the Lord, 44, 24 of Isaiah, your Redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am maker of how many? Of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Brethren, if Jesus is not God, if Colossians 1, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, calling him the creator is not so, he can't be God. But he is God. Notice the verse. Let's put it back up on the screen because it says, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things. All things were made by him and for him and through him, stretching out the heavens by myself, spreading out the earth all alone. Here's my point. Jesus cannot be some junior partner in the creation. He cannot be a created lesser God than Yahweh or Jehovah. He is God. Listen to the logic. Because he created everything according to John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Are you with me? Therefore, Jesus must be Jehovah or Jesus is Yahweh. Now again, deep and profound, right? But how could he be the creator of all things unless he's Yahweh? Because Yahweh just said, I created everything by myself all alone. Once again, we come back to the triune nature of God, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all involved in creation, yet the three are the one God. And all God's people said, <laughs> I get it. I feel you. But look, if God's nature was easy to figure out, then we could figure out a lot of other things about God, like how he spoke the universe into existence. He is higher than us, brethren. We don't have to fully intellectually comprehend every angle of it, but we can apprehend it because the Bible teaches it. So it's enough for me at some point, as much as I've studied all these things over the years, to lay it back down on his feet and say, you are God alone, and I'm just going to believe what the Bible says about you. Amen? Because this is what the Bible teaches. There's one God, and he came down in the person of Jesus Christ. Just a few more. Isaiah 45, 21 says, Declare and set forth the case. Your case, indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? 
and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, say it with me, and there is no other. Any other so-called God is an idol, a false God. And Jesus, because he's the creator and because he's called God in the New Testament, 1 John 5.20, Romans 9.5, Titus 2.13, John 20.28, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Now our Jehovah's Witness friends say that their way of explaining this is that Thomas was so overwhelmed by seeing Jesus risen because remember he was doubting it when he saw Jesus, he went, oh my Lord, oh my God, almost like a valley boy back in the day. <laughs> but see, this is not how the Jews would speak. They would not even speak God's name out loud. They reverenced it as holy. For Thomas to say, you are my Lord and you are my God would be considered blasphemy unless it was true. And then Jesus says, he doesn't say, oh, no, 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 Thomas, you got it all wrong. I'm not really God. He says, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He affirms Thomas's declaration. Jesus is God. And he manifested himself, of course, in human form. And then uh, just a few others. Moving to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, Therefore concerning things, the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. They're simply just a false statue. And there is no God but one. No God but one. And then Jeremiah 10, 10 and 11 says, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King, at his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. You see, the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And they said, what must we do to work the works of God, to do the will of God? And Jesus said, this is the will of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Amen? So God the Father sent God the Son down to us to show us who he is and so that we can have eternal life. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus. Much more could be said, but for the sake of time, let's turn back to 1 John. So we know uh, Jesus is called God, for example, in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am John 8, 24, if you're taking notes, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Uh, strong deity versus Titus 2, 13, where it calls Jesus our great God and Savior. And there are others. If you're interested, I have a whole, uh, I have a whole list in my notes here. I'd be happy to uh, forward them by email to anybody who wants them. Okay, so we, we see this teaching now. We've got... Uh, the, the world lying in the sway, the power of the wicked one. We know that the Son of God has come to give us understanding, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, end of 1 John 5.20. This is the true God, and notice, this is eternal life. 
See, to know Jesus is to have the life. It's to have eternal life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. 1 John 5, 12. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. You have true life. No fake, no copy, no counterfeit. If you have the real Christ, you have the real life. Amen? There are, you know, idols are called many things in the Bible like empty, um, you know, powerless, futile. And it says in Psalm 115 that those who make them idols, false gods, will be like them. Empty, futile, without life. If you follow and worship idols, you will become exactly like the thing that you worship. If you worship the true and living God, you'll be full, complete in Christ, overflowing with his life. But if you worship an idol, you will be dead, lifeless, empty, and your life will be futile. And if you're a Christian and you go back to idols, you will find them to be dead, lifeless, futile, and empty. Amen? And how many of us have tried to go back to dead idols? But once you serve the living God, there's no one and nothing like him. And then the letter ends on this note. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. <laughs> now that's written to Christians, so that tells me that idolatry is a very real temptation for believers. Amen? It is very easy to get sucked back in to idolatry, to uh, the, the world's rivers running men, and it's easy to jump into a paddle boat. <laughs> you don't even have to paddle. You're just going to go, right? Because that's the way the system is. The system is everywhere. It's all around us. The world swims with idols. It's from my notes. Since then, it is only the true God and his, in his son Jesus Christ that eternal life resides. It is urgently necessary to distinguish truth from error. Here, John refers not to material statues and the like, but to false conceptions of God, which cannot save. Any conception of him that is at variance with his self-revelation in Christ is an idol. Substitutes will never do, because they are a lie, and they cannot save. Amen? So little children... Watch out. Guard yourselves from idols because they can be subtle. They can be in the form of false teaching, redefinitions of the biblical Christ. They can suck you in in many different ways. Israel got sucked in over and over again to the ways of the nations. Why? Because they were attractive. Because they appealed to the flesh. Because their ceremonies had a lot to do with the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. And people were enamored by it. And people are enamored by pragmatism as well. If an idol worshiper from another country says, man, our crops have been flowing, we're doing great, it could be tempting to go, well, maybe I'll go over there. Maybe I'll try that because maybe my Christian life's been a little tough lately, right? And it's been hard. And that's part of the battle. And so let's just make sure we've got this last one in our hearts. Little children. Guard yourselves from idols. Oh, Lord, help us. Because uh, in one of the writers from years gone by says, our hearts can be idol-making factories. 
Oh, Lord, we, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth, but we find a pull. Uh, our flesh is attracted to these idols, these false ways and conceptions. And Father, forgive us for the times that we've put other things before you or tried to worship them alongside you. You deserve our uh, best. You deserve first place. You tell us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll add everything back to you. Lord, as we reflect on 1 John, we're so grateful for many beautiful truths that we found in this book. I think none greater than that we can know that we have eternal life because we have trusted in the Son of God. Thank you that, Jesus, you came to give us understanding. Thank you that you came, us to, get, you came to give us life and if we have believed in you, we are in the true God and we have eternal life. And he who began a good work in us will complete it till the day of Christ. We just want to say we love you. We worship you. We ask for your forgiveness for areas of our lives where idols maybe have crowded in. Help us to just simply forsake that, Lord, and to trust you afresh. Uh, each and every day, to go to our knees in prayer, to make sure that you are first, that we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, and we're always ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Now, if you're here and maybe you've not met this Jesus, maybe you don't know that you have eternal life abiding in you. Maybe you have felt hopeless Incomplete. Maybe you feel like you got deceived by a cult or a non-Christian movement or maybe even a professing Christian movement. Maybe you didn't understand that Jesus is God and came to save you and will save you by grace. This is your chance. Don't let it pass you by. Cry out to him, Lord Jesus, would you save me? Would you be my God and my Savior and my King? My Lord, I confess that I've had idols in my life. Sometimes I've believed the lie, Lord, but I'm gonna repent of that, pray it if it's you. I'm gonna repent of that right now and place my trust in the true and living God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came down to save us. Would you save me now? If you're a prodigal, you might wanna just form a prayer of coming back home to the true and living God and forsaking any idol that's crowded out his majesty and lordship in your life. And if you're a believer, I pray that you've been encouraged, edified, built up in your most holy faith and that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.